Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your help as we come to this difficult passage about the first day of our Lord Jesus in the holy city of Jerusalem. Lord, we ask that you give us insight into all of his sufferings and to all of his teachings. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now to the final third of the Gospel of Mark. We have journeyed with Jesus in a compressed account of roughly three years And now the final third is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. It's almost strange because if writing a biography of someone's life, you would normally find that the last third of the book is not dedicated to their final week, to their death. But obviously, Mark has something to emphasize. As Jesus comes to Jerusalem, as he arrives in the holy city, and as he proceeds to the cross, 
And as God will raise him from the dead, there is a special emphasis of the mysterious plan of God working itself out. And we've seen through the Gospel of Mark, as Jesus was announced at the beginning to be the divine Son, the ruler, the Son of David, who was coming to bring God's reign to the earth, to reconcile heaven and earth in some way, we've seen that Jesus defies expectations. Last week we saw that he said, the great among you will be the servant of all. This is Jesus' way. It's a counterintuitive kingdom. It's upside down in so many ways. And once again, as he enters into Jerusalem, with the shouts of the crowd calling out Psalm 118, Hosanna to the Son of David, he's riding on a donkey. He doesn't refuse their praise. He doesn't refuse the title of the King of Israel, the Son of David. But yet, he receives that accolade and that praise on the back of a very humble animal. And it was customary in the ancient world that when a king arrived in a city that the crowds went out from the city to greet them. And so this is what was happening. Jesus was being welcomed into the city of Jerusalem as king. And he defies expectations in the way that he brings his kingdom about. So another way that this happens here. Roughly 150 years prior to this event, there was another young, zealous Jew. His name was Judas Maccabeus. His father was a priest, and the Syrians had taken over Jerusalem and installed an altar to Zeus in the temple. Judas Maccabeus had some military victories against the Syrians and then rode into Jerusalem and cleansed the temple. He removed the altar to Zeus, and he declared himself the king of Israel. And it was seen as a great reform and a great revival. And Jesus comes into the holy city taking certain actions that everyone understood. He was proclaiming to be the great king and the high priest of Israel. And of course, it threatened people. It was a source of controversy. We read that the scribes and the, and the, and the priests... They were scared of Jesus. They feared him. They didn't know what to do with him, and they were seeking to put him to death. And so here Jesus enters into the city on a donkey to the praise of the people. And then a few short days later, he will exit the city bearing a cross to the jeers of the crowds. And so what exactly happens over these next five chapters? How does Jesus go from receiving the praise of the coming king of Israel who is going to unite heaven and earth and restore everything, all of God's created purposes, to then bearing a cross? What is it that made him so controversial? And what can make him so controversial for us today? In this passage, we see one particular thing. And it's this, that Jesus confronts corrupt systems of fruitless worship. That's what made Jesus so controversial in the church of his day, that he was about confronting corrupt systems of fruitless worship. Now, there's a strange detail to this passage, and it's the account of the fig tree. You find it first in verses 12 through 14, and then we turn back to it in verse 20. And many people find it strange. Why does Jesus curse the horticulture of ancient Israel. Why does he curse this tree? And it's important to recognize that this is an illustration. 
that Jesus is using the fig tree to make a point about the fruitless worship of the temple that he had just visited. And so Jesus turns up at the tree. He sees that it's full in leaf, and he desired to have some food because he was hungry. It was not the season for figs, Mark tells us, but it also was customary to, to eat what were called the pagim. They were the early buds of figs, okay? So they were unripe figs, and they were considered somewhat of a delicacy by some. And so Jesus comes to the tree to pull the pagim. And if a tree had a lot of leaves, you would assume that there were going to be a lot of figs, a lot of pagim to eat there. Jesus finds none. And this meant but one thing about the tree. It meant that the tree was unhealthy, that there was something profoundly wrong with the tree. It was all leaf and no fruit. Or as one of my British friends says, it was all mouth and no trousers, okay? That the tree was not performing as it was designed to. There was obviously a sickness in it. And this is Jesus' critique of what was happening in Israel. That Israel was missing its purpose in many ways, and that it was all leaf and no fruit, all mouth, no trousers. And the passage is about detailing what was wrong, and it lets us know what can go wrong in the church today as well. Because while Jesus is our great Savior, and He is the one who gives Himself on the cross for our sins, He's also the one who stands as the Lord of the church and evaluates it and calls her to be faithful, that we be the people who proclaim His excellencies to the nations. And so what exactly was wrong in Israel? We find three things in the passage that were going wrong. And the first is this, there was activity, but yet no spiritual reality. Jesus shows up at the temple and He cleanses it. This was controversial action, Because when Judas Maccabeus had turned up at the temple and he cleansed it, what did he remove? He removed an altar of Zeus. That's what it meant to cleanse the temple. And the Jews of Jesus' day in no way saw themselves as unfaithful to the God of Israel. And yet Jesus cleanses the temple, indicating that there was something terribly wrong. And then what he says to them, he says, is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And Jesus borrows this phrase, den of robbers, from Jeremiah 7. And so I just invite you to turn over to Jeremiah chapter 7 with me. In Jeremiah 7, what we find is that the prophet is decrying a hypocritical form of worship that was taking place in Israel. The people found a certain confidence in the fact that they had possession of the temple and that the temple marked God's dwelling with them. It was a sign of their election and blessing by God. And so in verse 4, Jeremiah says, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And then in verse 14, once again, Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust. Okay? It was their trust, their possession of the temple. It was that important to them. 
And yet what we find is that their lives were bankrupt. Verse 8, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by by my name, and say we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? And then in verse 11, has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? And this is the phrase that Jesus picks up. And what he was finding in the temple was an emptiness. That there was bustling activity. That as he entered, he found the court of the Gentiles filled with activity. There was trading going on. And what this was was a trading system to provide unblemished offerings for the people of Israel. And so there was economic exchange going on in the court of the Gentiles, and also people had to pay the temple tax, and so they had to have the right coinage. And so this bustling activity was taking place, and Jesus observes it all and says that it has become a den of robbers, not because he was opposed to the financial trade, but because of the spiritual hollowness of what was happening that there was loads of activity, a bustling life around the temple, a boasting in the temple, but there was no spiritual reality in Israel. And that in very large degrees, they were missing the point. That they were worshiping the shadow and boasting in the shadow of things and not the substance, the true temple who was in their midst. And friends, this is the great danger for the church still today that we can so easily find something that is important to boast in, that we can find our confidence in that and miss the true reality, that we can get busy in the activity, that we can be bustling in activity as a church and have no spiritual reality among us, that we can also be like Israel. We can be corrupt in our lifestyles and hypocrites and yet regular in worship and dutiful before God in some ways, and yet completely faithless in others. And friends, this is what Jesus was bringing into judgment. That Israel was all leaf and no fruit. All mouth, no trousers, no reality to back it up. Nothing real, nothing substantive. It's the first thing that was wrong. Now the second is this is that Jesus also found that the purposes of God were being forsaken in the temple. Temple is a vital symbol for Israel. It was the place of God's dwelling. If you look back in the Old Testament, the design of Solomon's temple and the temple that was then subsequently rebuilt, that the inner sanctuary of the temple was filled with garden imagery. It's awesome because it was a picture of the Garden of Eden. And this is why the innermost uh, sanctuary of the temple, only one person entered once a year. It was the place of God's dwelling, and they came with the blood of atonement to make peace with God, to cry out for forgiveness of the people's sins. And it was from this temple that God's people were to bless the nations of the earth. And when Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 56, this is what he means. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? 
that the people of Israel had been chosen by God so that they would be a blessing to the nations of the earth. They were not simply to get lost in boasting about their possession of the temple, that the temple was to be the place and the center from which they launched their mission to the nations of the earth to show God's mercy. And Jesus says that it's a den of robbers. It's interesting because this phrase seems to have multiple reference. But the word for robbers is what uh, we find later in the gospel when two men are killed with Jesus. It's the word that we translate robbers or we can translate revolutionaries. It's important to remember that Rome did not crucify people for stealing things. That the particular issue of the day in Jesus' time is that there were zealots in Israel attempting to throw out Rome. They were known as lestes. That's the word that we translate robbers. And Jesus is saying that the temple has become a home of revolutionary activity. That it was bustling with activity, but it was the wrong kind of activity. They were fueled with a vision of the kingdom of God. And yet their vision of that kingdom was that it came through the sword that it came through power. And Jesus' critique of what was happening in the temple, that this was not the true reign of God, that the reign of God didn't come through the sword, that it didn't come by raw power, that it came through service and it came through suffering. Jesus had a completely different conception. And that the people of God were to be a blessing to the nations of the earth. Turn back with me to Psalm 67. God had said to Abraham that he would bless him, that his descendants would be as many as the sands upon the seashore and the stars in the sky, and that those descendants would be a blessing to the nations of the earth. And then Psalm 67 captures it. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. And friends, this was what was completely missing in Israel, was a concern for the nations. Rather, there was only judgment. How do we remove Rome and how do we violently do so? They were full of hatred and a lack of forgiveness. And Jesus found them spiritually bankrupt. That it was a den of revolutionaries. A den of hypocrisy. There was activity but no reality. And the purposes of God were completely lost. And friends, this is the sad reality for us as God's people today. It can still be very tempting that we get caught up with every other kind of agenda rather than the central purpose that God has us exist for. William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1940s, famously said that the church is the one society that exists for those who are not its members. It's a helpful line that we exist for the nations, that Jesus is for the nations, that Jesus comes to reconcile everything in heaven and earth that he's profoundly liberal and generous, and he's wanting to reconcile people amongst the nations to himself. 
And this was the vocation that Israel had forsaken. And Jesus comes to cleanse that, to remove it because it's not part of God's reign and what it looks like for God to be king on earth. The third piece that Jesus finds problematic when he observes the temple is that the plan of God was falling on deaf ears. Jesus comes in, and he doesn't do what they expected him to do. He comes in, and they were perhaps expecting that he proclaim his kingdom and set up his reign and throw out the Romans. Rather, the first night when he shows up, he just leaves. And then he comes back, and he cleanses the temple. He wasn't supposed to do that. There weren't any foreign idols there. Why was he doing this? But it's important because as we look at this account in Mark chapter 11, the book of Zechariah becomes pretty central. We're told that the king of Israel in chapter 9 would ride into the city on a donkey. And then if you look at the close of the book of Zechariah, if you look in chapter 14, what is laid out for us is this the great day of God's visitation to the earth. And Zechariah closes with this line, verse 21, And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. No more trading will go on in the house of the Lord on that day. Jesus removes the traitors. And so what was happening? Jesus was declaring that the great day of God had arrived. And yet he just simply didn't fit their expectations. He said that the the great would be the last. And that to have glory meant to suffer. That's not what it was to be Israel's king. He didn't fit into the, the whole plan as they had sketched it out. And you see, they had a tight box into which they had woven their God. And they were lost in their worship of the temple and their violent activities, and they couldn't see the reality. The temple was just a shadow. Jesus was the substance, and they were deaf to it. They couldn't see. They couldn't hear. The disciples themselves had been struggling with it. And it was those who were weak and needy, like the blind and the lame, who got it. And how different Jesus' reception was in Jerusalem than it was from the blind man outside of Jericho who runs to Jesus, falls upon his knees, and cries out for mercy. And so here we have Jesus announcing that the great day of God is here. He throws out the traitors, but why does he do so? Mark also includes this little strange detail He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. This was the normal foot traffic if you were to bring an offering. You would carry your offering through the temple, and Jesus closes down the temple. He throws out the traitors as a sign that the day of God had arrived, and then he prevents anyone from offering sacrifice. And why is that? you turn to the book of Hebrews with me, 
chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then in chapter 10, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. And friends, this is what was being played out. Jesus stopped the sacrificial system because he himself would be sacrifice. He would be the high priest who made atonement with God once and for all. He would show the substance to which the shadow of the temple had always pointed. That Jesus halts the fruitless worship in order that he could secure the people of God who would be made up from the nations. You see, when Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, there was a flaming sword, a sword that kept anyone from entry into that holy place. And that holy place then becomes pictured in the Holy of Holies, the innermost sanctuary of the temple. And you could only enter on the pain of death. The high priest goes in once a year with the blood, and he has a rope tied around his leg just in case he doesn't make it, and they could pull him out. And yet Jesus goes into the holy place. Why? Psalm 24 says that he who has a clean hands and pure heart, that that one could ascend the hill of the Lord. And friends, this is where Jesus is so unique. He has the clean hands and the pure heart that could enter back into the Garden of Eden. And what he does is he takes himself under the judgment of the flaming sword that He dies the death we deserve and He makes sacrifice on our behalf in order to reconcile us to the God that we otherwise could not know because of the impediment of our sins. Jesus goes under the judgment of God that we can have the favor of God. And this plan was falling on deaf ears because the people assumed that they had no sins that needed to be forgiven. They refused to see their fruitless ways of worship. They refused to recognize their hypocrisy. They refused to recognize that they had taken up God's vocation for them in the wrong direction, that they hadn't loved the world that God had called them to. And so on the final day, Jesus is coming back into the city, and Peter notices the fig tree was withered. Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And then Jesus gives some instructions about prayer. And many people ask, why is this here? Why does Jesus instruct the disciples about prayer? It's important to recognize that the temple was the place to which the people of God had prayed for hundreds of years. Even when you were removed from the temple, you prayed in the direction of the temple. That that was the dwelling of God. And Jesus was announcing judgment on the temple. And so he says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, 
And friends, he's not just talking about any mountain, okay? He is looking at Mount Zion, the place of the temple. They are most likely standing on the Mount of Olives. He says, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. And most likely from the Mount of Olives, you can also see the Dead Sea. Whoever says to this mountain to be thrown into the sea, and it's an image of judgment. Jesus was announcing what would happen in 70 AD when Rome came and sacked the temple and removed it, and it's never been rebuilt. That it was a judgment on the people of God who had taken their vocation in the wrong direction and turned to fruitless worship. And Jesus was coming to create a new people from amongst the nations, Jew and Gentile, who stand on equal status, on equal footing because of His blood shed on their behalf, and that they would exist for the nations, called out to the world to not have a fruitless form of worship, to not be a den of robbers, to not take the calling of God and have their own agendas attached to it, but a people who live under His authority and thrive and flourish and exist as servants for the world. That is what Jesus begins to bring into play as He rides into the royal city. His kingdom with all of its reversal of expectations. And He's also enacting the great revolution of salvation, of bringing Himself to bear a cross for us. That's what it's all about. Reversing everything we know. And so as we approach the next chapters, prepare to see the whole entire plan of God unfold in which Jesus prepares His disciples to be this new nation that would be a walking, moving temple, the presence of God in all creation. Because that's where this Jesus goes. Because His heart is for the world. And so let's tune our own affections to that.